Uh, two things I'll mention. Number one, just a reminder that we're all on mission. It's just a matter of where. Uh, so they happen to be going overseas, and praise God, but we are also on mission here. Uh, the exhortation in Matthew 28 to make disciples, um, that applies to all of us. Number two, you see how they're using their vocations. I wanted to point this out. A lot of times there's, there can be like this myth, like, well, you have to stop whatever your vocation is, and you can be a missionary. Uh, so Kate is a nurse and is going to be a nurse in Guatemala, and then Mark is actually sustaining himself financially by starting an accounting business that he's been running for the last probably a year and a half or two. He's going to keep doing that business while he's in Panama. Praise God. Isn't that really cool? So just food for thought uh, as you consider whether or not the Lord might be using you and sending you in that kind of way. Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. We have three messages left in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. And there are some blue Bibles in some of the seat baskets in front of you as well. This is a very heavy passage, I will say. Uh, and it's interesting. So last week we were celebrating, this week we are reading one of the heaviest passages in Scripture. But isn't that the Christian life, this rhythm of celebration and heaviness sometimes coexisting? If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is a heavy passage. And when there's heaviness, I think our dual temptations are either to be crushed by the heaviness or to tune it out. And so we would pray against both of those responses, Lord, that you would navigate um, this room with the precision that you always do, knowing that there are different people in this room with different needs, and we'll need to hear probably different things from this passage. Holy Spirit, work accordingly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are two groups of people that should probably, believe it or not, be encouraged or heartened by our passage this morning. Number one, those of you who are concerned that you're just not very impressive Christians. You know, perhaps you yearn with all of your heart to be a faithful follower of Jesus, but your sense is that you're constantly falling short. You're convinced that other people are getting along far better than you are when it comes to the Christian life, and you know this because of their social media posts. You know, you see them volunteering at the soup kitchen and then running that 10K for a cause, even though they didn't sleep all that well the previous night and were a bit disappointed with their time. If this describes you, if you're feeling weak and that you're just not hacking it as a Christian, you will actually, I think, be encouraged by our time this morning. Number two, I think you'll be encouraged if, you know, if you're one of those people who are just, you're tired, you're tired of the hypocrites, you know, you're tired of people who put on a show but 
Don't walk the walk, especially behind the scenes. You know, those, those people. I think you'll be encouraged. But there are at least two groups of people who should hear this passage and be, shall we say, unsettled. Number one, those of us who believe that we are very impressive Christians. Thank you very much. We get lots of affirmation and accolades, and we really enjoy it. We might even posture ourselves in a way that maximizes opportunities for commendation. You know, we might have very unique, very powerful gifts that fuel a sense of superiority. You know, we're making an impact, and people tell us this. And we're very aware of how much we are sacrificing for the kingdom, especially compared to other people. There's a second group that might be unsettled by this passage. Those of us who are tired of the hypocrites. Because even though your concerns might be valid, we might be hypocrites too. Two questions this morning as we continue to make our way through the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a conclusion that leaves us with the choice between two directions that Jesus describes using a series of very powerful metaphors. Question number one, what is the will of the Father? And then question number two, how do we know if we're known? What's the will of the Father, and how do we know if we're known? Let's start with that first question. What is the will of the Father? According to Jesus, verse 21, those who will enter, consider the weight of this, those who will enter the kingdom of heaven, are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is spicy. This is like ordering the the level three out of five heat at an Indian restaurant because you think it's going to be moderate, and now you need to go to the hospital. (laughs) According to Jesus, not Chipper Flanagan, not, you know, American evangelicals, according to Jesus, there are those who will enter the kingdom of heaven and those who won't. And according to Jesus, we will enter the kingdom of heaven if we do the will of the Father. On one hand, none of what Jesus is saying here is surprising. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exhorts, his followers to live this way and not that way, and in doing so, they will live well in this world. They will flourish. And Jesus makes comments throughout the sermon about having and entering versus not having and not entering the kingdom of heaven, garnishing this kingdom talk with references to hell, which we talked about in chapter 5, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 30. So a truly surprising conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount would have been something like, well, I hope all of you found this talk that I gave very engaging, but in truth, everybody is headed for the kingdom. I'm not trying to be divisive here. Let's just go, let's just go have some drinks. Or, you know, take, take my exhortation seriously, but at the end of the day, nobody's perfect. It's all about grace. Don't want to cause undue angst. Those would have actually been surprising conclusions to Jesus' sermon. All of this might 
fit the spirit of our age, but it wouldn't fit very well with the Sermon on the Mount. But on the other hand, Jesus' real conclusion, which actually does match the trajectory of the Sermon on the Mount, it's spicy. And it tends to offend different people in different ways. Some of us are offended by the exclusivity of Jesus' claims, this suggestion that not everybody is going into the kingdom of heaven. Some of us are offended by the idea that we should be subject to anybody's will other than our own. And some of us are offended by the emphasis here on doing, which might appear at least to interfere with our understanding of salvation and grace. Which means we're on the right track, because Jesus' ministry jostles those who truly have ears to hear him. In fact, if Jesus' ministry and teaching always goes down super smooth, you're probably missing something. So what is the will of the Father that we're supposed to be doing? It's simply doing all that Jesus has been exhorting throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, specifically, though, in a heart-level manner catalyzed by following Jesus and drawing near to Him. Well then, how do we, how do we follow Jesus and draw near to Him? Here's how Jesus Himself puts it, Matthew 4, 17, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 16, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We repent of our propensity to live as kings and queens of our own kingdoms, according to our own wisdom and standards. We then come to the true king who gives us rest, trusting him and giving him our burdens. And then in coming to him, we deny ourselves and we take up our cross, following Jesus in obedience, no matter how much it might cost us personally. Perhaps you can think of all of this as repent and rest and raise, that is, your cross. You come near to Jesus by repenting and resting and then raising up our cross. And then here's what happens. What happens is that the true king, as we draw near to him, gradually reshapes the hearts and the affections of his people, catalyzing a shift in the way that we view ourselves and our mission in this world. Once we live for ourselves, now we live for Him and for others. Sacrificial living fueled by our experiences of the true King's steadfast love and compassion and grace. This past week I mentioned to my wife that I was going to say something about Taylor Swift on Sunday. And she told me, oh, are you? Tell me you're not going to do some sort of metaphor about the Christian life. And I said, no. I mean, kind of. Yes. And then I told her the something that I was going to say upon request. And the following comments have been given. Just very tepid 
approval. Taylor Swift is on tour right now, specifically the Eras tour, which makes sense because she's nearly in her mid-30s. She's seen a lot of Eras. If you're not familiar with Taylor Swift, she's a singer from Pennsylvania. That's a pretty good summary. Her fans are some co sometimes called Swifties, if you've heard that term before. If it somehow became a cultural imperative to be a Swiftie, and you knew nothing about her except now you know she's from Pennsylvania, you could try to just sort of start doing Swifty things. You know, you could buy some merchandise, you could Google some song lyrics and you could memorize them, you could make some speculative posts on social media about her dating life, whatever. But you, you wouldn't really be a Swifty, right? It would be nothing more than a collection of changes to your external behavior. The only way to really become a fan is to actually experience her music, right? At the very least, by listening to some albums, even better by going to one of her stadium concerts, or even better by managing some kind of, I don't know if this exists, VIP experience where you get to meet her personally and spend time with her. So proximity to Taylor Swift is the thing that actually turns you into a Swifty and catalyzes genuine behavior. Sometimes a true behavior might look a lot like the fake external kind, but the heart and the motivation behind these behaviors is fundamentally different. A difference that actually tends to show itself over time. The behaviors of the frauds eventually look kind of rigid, kind of self-concerned, and the real fans get so swept up into the mania that they, as I read this week, do things like offer people free pizza for life if they will just give up two tickets to a concert, they put their small business on the line for some music. The way to be about the Father's will likewise involves proximity to Jesus, drawing near to Him. This is the nature of a true disciple. And as you draw near to the King, He'll change your heart. As you draw near to the king, he'll change your heart. Here's one more way to think about it. You can't truly live the Sermon on the Mount without Jesus, without being equipped by and empowered by him. But when you indeed get Jesus, when you repent and rest and raise, as we were just talking about, you will end up living the sermon and therefore doing the Father's will. Not perfectly, but you will see fundamental change in your life. Why is Jesus getting into this at the end of a sermon? I mean, why now? Is it something like, you know, before I close, let me just make all of my followers really anxious, you know? Let me bury them with a lifetime of paralyzing introspection about the quality of their faith. Not so much. He's getting into this for two major reasons that have everything to do with His kindness and His compassion. Number one, Jesus is protecting His followers from false prophets. The false 
spiritual leaders we discussed two weeks ago in verses 15 through 20. Such leaders, this is grievous, but such leaders are out there. And they will often be charming and gifted, and they will show a certain amount of compelling interest in your life. But we saw that they will eventually expose themselves for the wolves that they are on account of their bad fruit, bad character, you know, maybe domineering, abusive behaviors, you name it. And now Jesus actually adds a related layer. These leaders actually might demonstrate a certain amount of power, even what appears to be supernatural power. Verse 22, prophesying in the name of the Lord and casting out demons and and doing mighty works. But that by no means guarantees that they are true followers of the King and known by God. And on that day, see verse 22, clearly a forthcoming day of judgment, there will be scenarios in which Jesus declares to people who claim to be prophets and teachers and did works in his name, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, of of evil. So you can see what Jesus is saying to his disciples. My children, please do not be taken in by the show. Don't be taken in by the song and the dance. Keep your eyes on me and be blessed by leaders who do the kinds of things I've just been teaching about in the sermon because they've got their eyes fixed on me and know that I will deal with the hypocrites. The phonies and the liars will not escape judgment. Church, are we being taken in by the show? Are we captivated by spiritual leaders because they preach to thousands and get lots of views on YouTube and write best-selling books? And perhaps you even hear sometimes of, of healings. Or do we follow leaders who have the heart of a shepherd because their eyes are fixed on the good shepherd? And they live it in the kind of way that Jesus outlines in the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes these kinds of leaders do indeed preach to thousands. And when they do, praise God and amen. But the main thing is their heart for Jesus. And a lot of them, i got to tell you, preach to tens of people every week, if at all. And a lot of them are faithful behind the scenes for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. 50 years. You've never heard of them because their eyes are fixed on Jesus. Here's something that kind of drives me nuts. Hearing someone say, you know, so and such church has a great pastor, and the sole reason they appear to know this is that the pastor is a gifted communicator. You can be a great communicator with a frosty relationship with Jesus, you can be a great communicator and mistreat your staff and your your congregants, and your spouse. Jesus wants to protect his children from being taken in by the show and ultimately by the wolves. And you know, if you've been harmed by a wolf, 
and some of you have. If you've been harmed by a wolf, concerned that full justice will never be done, know that God will deal with them. Do you see this? The hypocrites will not stand in the final judgment. They'll be dismissed as workers of lawlessness. Second reason why Jesus gives these warnings at the end of his sermon. To help his own followers avoid the hypocritical life. Perhaps a life involving professions of allegiance to Jesus without any tangible evidence of heart change. Perhaps a life involving changes in external behaviors that have nothing to do with love for the king. Maybe you're living something that kind of looks like the kingdom life that that Jesus holds out for us in this sermon, but it's kind of a facade. It's showy. You post about it on Instagram for likes. I'm reminded of Matthew 6, 2, when you give to the needy, Jesus says, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Chipper, though, isn't this a perfect example of this anxiety bubble bath that you said Jesus wasn't drawing. The tenor of the Gospels is this. Jesus comforts the weak and the despairing. Those, those who want Jesus but feel they can't get to him or that they're losing him. And he challenges the proud and the self-assured. If you're proud and self-assured, be very sensitive to Jesus' warning this morning. Putting on a spiritual show does not make you a child of God. And we don't dare say this with even a hint, a hint of, of smug satisfaction. But with tears in our eyes, we do need to say that there will be on the final day those who say, didn't we preach the thousands. Didn't we have a very popular YouTube channel? Didn't we have positions of leadership in our church or in our parachurch organization? And God will say to them in return, I never knew you. So behold the compassion of Jesus in warning us. I want all of you, your heart, your speech, your actions, I want the total package that comes with total repentance and surrender to the king. And none of this is congruent with spiritual pride or self-assuredness. Spiritual pride and self-assuredness can be very difficult to detect. Often other people kind of have to, to bring it to our attention because if we're spiritually prideful, we think we're impressive. <laughs> Two things to watch out for, though. Number one, watch out if you're always going on about the hypocrites. Other people that just cannot keep up with your spiritual purity and rightness. Be careful. You know, functionally, you, you've kind of become a professional critic. Maybe you've set up one of those discernment blogs where you're always trying to find the, the people that aren't cutting it. Because, of course, you're just being a prophet. Be careful. 
And then secondly, watch out for this, this syndrome in which you're just sort of excessively self-referential. You're always talking about yourself all the time. It's always about you. A hallmark of the heart, heart softness that comes from following the king is actually self-forgetfulness. Frauds, even if they profess Christ, are ultimately, they're, so, they're, they're self-consumed. But back to those of us who are anxious, who feel weak, maybe we're despairing. What are we to make of these warnings? Just mention something briefly here, then we'll close. And that brings us to our second question. How do we know if we're known? A lot we could say about this, but one thing I want to highlight in particular. How do we know if we're known? I don't know if you caught this. There's a significant surprise in verse 23. Very significant. Most of us probably expect Jesus to say something like, you know, depart from me because you never knew me. In fact, if I asked those of you who've seen this passage before to recount it, there's a very good chance that you would have used that language. But what does Jesus actually say? I never knew you. Do you see that the primary knower in this passage turns out to be Jesus? Yes, it's very legitimate to talk about us knowing Jesus, but the question beyond that is this, does Jesus know you? And I got to say, there is comfort in that statement for weak people, for despairing people. For those of us who feel like the quality of our faith is always lacking. Because at the end of the day, the issue is whether or not God knows you and he is preeminently strong, never lacking for anything. There is something so refreshing about our spiritual estate ultimately having to do with God's posture toward us, with him knowing us. One of the most common traumas of childhood is getting lost and one of those big box stores, you know, you, you darted off to go look at something. For me, it was usually baseball cards or something like that, something shiny. And then you look up and then you don't see your parent or your guardian. In truth, it's not quite as concerning as it feels, but it feels fairly apocalyptic at the time. And as I was reflecting on those moments this week, I realized that the faint comfort that I had in the midst of my distress, of my weakness, was, well, my dad knows me. Yeah, I mean, I knew my dad too, and that's important. But comfort and security were found mainly in him knowing me knowing my habits, knowing my little scamper, knowing my voice, and having the power to navigate the store, 
with more acumen than me and to ask other people for help. So how do we know if we're known? We're known if we come to Jesus repenting and then resting, saddling him with all of our burdens and then taking up our cross and following him. It has nothing to do with being impressive or putting on this big show. It has everything to do with humbling ourselves before the God who is impressive. It has everything to do with crying out to God, Luke 18, be merciful to me, a sinner. While the people who trust in themselves say, God, I thank you that I am not like those people. Because the thing about crying out to God for mercy is that he gives it every single time, without fail. And you cannot exhaust his mercy. You cannot exhaust his grace. As we've been saying throughout this series, the guy giving the sermon was on his way to the cross to deal with the sin of those who ask for help, who cry out to him. And say, would you give me mercy? And not just to deal with our sin and his death, but to rise from the dead and therefore raise us up from spiritual deadness into eternal kingdom, resurrected life, life in which he knows us more thoroughly than we can possibly imagine. Amen.